Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louv. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. My guests today are the returning Carl Abramson and his wife, Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, who are going to be talking about doing magic as a married couple. This is an exciting episode. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about this. And I think the idea of integrating your magical practice with your significant other is something that everybody who is interested in that topic has come up against one way or another. And I think is probably interested in hearing about. Let me read a little bit about their project from the back of their book, We May Need to Call on Our Cosmic Friends. How do you integrate magic into your day-to-day life? Swedish author Carl Abramson and American artist and psychoanalyst Vanessa Sinclair have successfully merged their interests in psychoanalysis, art, and the occult with their daily routines as a married couple. Every Monday on Patreon, they write about their ideas, theories, practices, experiences, collaborations, successes, and perhaps even occasional failures too. Once a year, their posts are anthologized into books like this one. Relentlessly rubbing out the boundaries between these interesting fields, Abramson and Sinclair enthusiastically experiment with artistic expression in various media while strengthening agency and success in their occult work all the while learning about themselves and each other in their quest for deeper insights. All right, so we're talking about this ongoing process. They've already released two anthologized hardcover books about their Magic Monday process. One is called It's Magic Monday Every Day of the Week. That's the first one. And then the second one just out now is We May Need to Call on Our Cosmic Friends. This was a great show. It was a refreshing topic, and you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here's Carl and Vanessa. Welcome back to the podcast, Carl, and welcome Vanessa for the first time. Thank you. I guess we're going to having us. Absolutely. We're going to talk about the Magic your Magic Monday series. Thank you for sending these to me, Carl. I have them both. And thank you for signing. Great. Thank you for signing them as well. 
So these are great. So where should we start? I mean, we can just have an, a wide ranging conversation, but this is, I think, a good, you know, anywhere it goes is fine. But I think that this is a good hopping off point. So this is a collection of your pa- like Monday Patreon posts about your Monday magic session. So tell us about tell us about who you are in the books, the audience. I know, but tell the audience. <laughs> you want to go first, Vanessa? Yeah, you can go first. Okay, well, well, basically how it started was that um, we were doing so much and and, uh, arranging these conferences and coming up with this, uh, Vanessa came up with this wonderful hashtag, psych art cult, which is basically, you know, psychology and art and the occult. And and, um, it was our world and it still is. You know, we're writing about it, lecturing about it, arranging conferences, uh, you know, publishing books about it. And then we thought that, well, we're doing this and a whole lot of other things. So let's just um, start a Patreon and see if someone is willing to to support it, but also get a lot of stuff in exchange for that in terms of uh, news, uh, you know, rare stuff, uh, exclusive content, whatever, you know, it's called these days. And then it dawned on us that uh, perhaps we could take it one step further and really share with people what it is that we're doing, except for the output. You know, it's easy to share the output in terms of products and, you know, visible manifestations. And um, we both felt that, yeah, this is interesting. So we started writing uh, once a week, that's what we call it, Magic Monday, about our magical practice and how it all is interconnected with the other practices, meaning the art or the creative stuff and the Vanessa psychoanalytic uh, work. And, you know, it's one great big um, cauldron in a way. And it was well received and, and we just kept going. And then when we've done it for about a year, we said, maybe it could be interesting to, to collect these or anthologize these posts as a book. And that I think came from me because I'm a pathological uh, book creator, as you know. Uh, and um, that turned out great. And then I think uh, in terms of the Magic Monday Post, I think we're now entering year number four. And we've just published uh, year number two. Um, and we'll soon do, well, pretty soon, book number three. So it's just an interesting little project that's basically built on regularity, but also about sharing uh, and then once a year, we also, you know, take a break and look at what is it that we've been writing about, you know, because it's not strategized in any way. You know, the Patreon that we have and our lives, fairly intuitive in its motion. And uh, so far, so good. I think uh, having these books that are borderline textbook, magical books, but also art books, specifically the new one, which is like, you know, uh, larger in size and, and stuff like that. It is a weird mix, but for us, it makes perfect sense to sort of uh, show and share uh, what it is that we're doing. And it's, you know, it's a lot of things, but usually you could say it has to do with psychology or psychoanalysis, art and the occult. So that's basically what these books contain, but also a lot of extensions, a lot of uh, takes on pop culture, what's going on, um, just basically anything that crosses our path that we take in, filter, and then give back under this Magic Monday umbrella. Would you call it a kind of mutual magical record? 
Absolutely. Uh, very, very uh, you know, uh, zeitgeistishly so, because a magical record could, of course, be traditionally someone just jotting down stuff in their own arcane, you know, Book of Shadows kind of thing. Uh, but I think we're um, flaunting it here. I mean, uh, you have to be a patron or you have to buy the book in a way, but it's really, you know, sometimes pretty intimate details. And and um, I haven't broken any oaths in terms of what I've written about. But but it is uh, kind of a, I don't know, it's something that I have never come across in a similar way. We yeah. do write about our personal lives. So in that sense, it is very much a record. Uh, but it's also, it's also about sharing just thoughts about other things that are going on also. So it's a, it's a little bit of everything. It's a, kind of a synthesis where we call it syncretistic approach to writing about the real magic of our lives. Yeah, it's like day-to-day magic because we do write it every week and we usually take turns and sometimes we work on a post together, but usually we take turns writing them every other week. But like if one of us has something specific we're doing that week, you know, we just posted, we'll just post again. And I work a lot with like different deities and on different astrological times and things like that and work with the tarot and so mine might be more synced up with like the time of year and what's going on in that way um and then carl of course is always writing so he shares a lot of his writing um and it's very much yeah like what we're doing that week so it's a very it's like a guide to like uh, how to do magical practice on a day-to-day level, you know, um, and you don't necessarily need to do what we're doing, but maybe it'll help people see like how they can practice magic uh, in a creative way in their day-to-day lives. That's so cool. Yeah, this book brings so many things into focus and and down to earth. And the two most obvious things that struck me just looking at these books right away, one is it's... <laughs> There's two things going on here which kind of contradict the general image that people have of a magician is kind of like standing on the cliff in front of their their tower by the seaside with like a cane brooding upon the the you know irresolvable universal paradoxes or whatever. Um, and this makes it much more about a daily pra- a process. You're showing you're documenting the process, which is so invaluable and also to document it as a couple, as far as I know, I've never seen that done before. So I immediately wanted to talk to you about it because this is like a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very happy that you, you uh, mentioned that aspect too, about the sort of, um, in a way, ultra romantic view of the magician as someone being very arcane, you know, caught up in arcane lore and arcane aesthetics and stuff like that. But that's not really um, what I think that we need right now at this point in in uh, human development uh, it's beautiful can be inspiring but what's you know what's then was then and and uh, this is literally here and now uh, and we're writing about it every week as as time passes and i think that it's important for me and i think it's true for Vanessa also to not get stuck in that uh, in these environments that we both come from in a way where you have these um, almost like schools or universities of magic or occultism. Uh, and again, it's like, great, you can go through a program, you can get an education there and, and a certificate and a funny hat, all these things. Uh, but it doesn't really amount to anything or mean anything unless you can truly apply it uh, in your own individuation process. That's a word that's, you know, constantly reoccurring within my writings. I also Vanessa's is like this incredible importance uh, 
of looking at yourself in the mirror every day and and uh, not be satisfied with you know previous triumphs or whatever you can call it along this magical path but just constantly uh, figure out am i done no i'm not done so i have to to move on and see what i can try in terms of other kinds of expressions or or how a thing is done or even you know uh, divest myself or ourselves of stuff that have been givens you know great givens great inspiring people books uh, again currents or schools of magic and and just really uh be honest and sincere about yeah this is still valid or no this has no resonance hmm. anymore so we just leave it and also write about why we're doing that what are some, I, what I think are, that oh, i was just going to ask but, what, what are some examples of that of things that you've specifically decided to leave behind as part of this process that's very interesting right okay well i can give a few personal examples and to leave behind that sounds pretty dramatic uh, but let's call it instead you know going with the flow and being honest and sincere about what the past is and what the present is and hopefully what the future will be. And I have done, I think unconsciously, at least Vanessa would say that, uh, over this this past decade, basically, uh, going through a lot of stuff in myself about people I've uh, worked with, people who taught me, people who inspired me. And all of these things came to a reckoning uh, in a way, because they're historical, you know, when people die, you can look in the rear view mirror and say, oh, now I get it. Now this, this was what have, what happened. And, and, uh, these were the things that were important that we talked about. And then you can make your own creations as someone who has uh, participated in something small or something big, um, in a private sphere or a public sphere. It doesn't really matter, but it's important that you as the experiencer, um, um, go through these things. And if it's valid enough, uh, share it to pay back, but also pay forward to the people who are uh, guaranteed interested in, in, uh, in stuff like this. And I'm talking, of course, of, you know, summing up that book of interviews with, with uh, Jan, the Sacred Intent book and the documentary film and, you know, um, my film about Anton, Anton LaVey uh, turned into a book. Uh, also, uh, and even the documentary about Kenneth Anger. And these were people who were with me uh, for as long as they were alive, basically. Uh, and I've sort of summed them up in my own peculiar way. It doesn't mean I'm leaving them behind, but they are now summed up. And it's for me to move on, uh, not with any sort of ill will, on the contrary, with great love and respect still, but I can't be still stuck in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to, to formulate that and just move on and find new things. And then, of course, there are things in the past that I cannot relate to. It makes no sense. And one of these things um, has been the, the you know, what's called the Western ceremonial tradition. Uh, that has no resonance for me mm -hmm. today. I'm like the Golden Dawn system, you know. It's too arcane. It's obfuscated. It's obfuscated for its own sake. Um, it's um, contrary to what I, and I also believe many people need at this point. We need to, I think we need to divest ourselves of any kind of obfuscation and just go with a you know, real core of whatever teaching there is and how that can affect you in a fast and efficient way uh, to be able to um, uh, you know, create a meaningful life 
and also show other people that it's possible to create these radical changes. So without you know further concrete examples, it's basically about keeping, just like driving, you know, you keep an eye in the rear view mirror, but you do keep the main focus on the road ahead of you. What about you, Vanessa? How's that process been for you? Well, I also you... would mention that when we were looking through, it's so interesting to look through the posts to collect them each year. Hmm. And when we were looking through the posts for this book, I realized I looked through the posts from the very, very beginning. And the we did start making this post right after Genesis dropped their body, right? So it was like we were processing a lot at that time. And Carl was writing about it and I was writing about like bringing Jen to the new school, which I think we included in this book. Um, and somehow writing about that and processing it, I said, you know, I'm going to start writing more about my magical and creative practices he here at Patreon. And that's kind of how that started. So that's, you know, that's direct lineage <laughs> Got it. Um, in that way. Um, for me, when I was in New York, I had a like magical uh, group of people, like a little coven, and then like a group of like Kimbando, Santeria practitioners that I hung out with all the time. So for me, it's been very much learning how to continue my practice uh, in a different country with a different land. You know, like the land in Scandinavia and Sweden is very different than in the U.S. and just learning to work in a whole different way. Um, you know, some of the kind of seated spirits that I work with, you know, are outside, but you can't really hang out outside and it's even in the winter for very long. So it's been kind of an adjustment to figure out, well, how do I still work this way? Um, yeah, but in a new way and by myself or with Carl rather than with like a whole you know group of people. And did you come to similar conclusions about what you feel people need now compared to maybe the Museum of Magic or older ways to do it? I've never been a subscriber to the museum. Um, I've always like taken classes and things like that and been like, oh, that's interesting, but like never hung on um, because they see it like to me, it's like the academia of uh, a culture. You know, it's like uh, you guys are saying a lot, but like, what are you really saying? Like you could do this in a much more simple way. And I think there's just like a certain kind of personality that really loves like getting into like, you know, grimoires and books and names of angels in ad infinitum. But, uh, and it's great. And I think that's really cool, but I'm just not that person, you know, like I'm much more just like in the dirt. I like getting messy, you know, I, I can't um, like memorize systems of things, you know. One of the beautiful things about magic for me is that there's so many different kinds of it. And at first that's really confusing, at least for me until I figured out, oh, there's so many different types of magic because there's so many different types of people and something's going to work for everybody, hopefully. So that is really interesting. And I think what you're, you're both saying about documenting the process in public and showing that it's possible is, and grounding it is really interesting. And I think is something that is, is very needed because, you know, one of the things for me, even when I was getting started out and now was reading all this stuff and saying like, okay, well, how do I put this together into an actual praxis? Praxis meaning not following Golden Dawn system, but a way of living. And, and that's something that Jen was, you know, very experimental at. Um, but that's something that I think is not clear to people and it's maybe not clear to people now. And maybe that's good because you don't want it to be too concretized into a dogma or something for people to emulate. But um, 
I think it's a really beautiful thing. And I also thought it was interesting that you were writing that you found a much higher caliber of people doing Patreon behind a paywall rather than just open on the on the social media. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's um, kind of uh, evident. This is old uh, saying that uh, something is only worth as much as someone is willing to pay for it in a way and and for us it's been great to you know get the support and also it's an inherent kind of respect there of course if you know someone's willing to pay five dollars or whatever it is you know okay great we'll give you loads of good material because for you maybe for you five bucks isn't so much for some people it could be uh, but uh, we really appreciate it and does accumulate in a nice way and we makes us very motivated to keep producing um mind-bending stuff basically and also so that in itself that relationship becomes part of the process or the product as jen would say uh and uh, it's not an end in itself i mean we would be doing the same thing poss- possibly in a different way if we didn't have this public approach in a way or honest public approach of being visible uh, even behind a paywall but but still you know we could do this completely occult if we wanted to and and they wouldn't change much for us however we are both pretty extroverted people we like to be in context um and it does give good uh, feedback uh, that we can use and learn from and also of course influx in terms of meetings and third mind processes that would wouldn't really happen otherwise okay so it has many 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 benefits and i think also that um um I'm trying to think if uh, there's anyone doing uh, something similar. Uh, I haven't come across it. And of course, there are many people who are writing in an honest way about their own process. And that's incredibly good. Uh, and also in terms of um, leaving schools behind, that's what we all do in sort of normal muggle life also. Uh, yeah. We cannot really say that we uh, don't like a school unless we've been through it. <laughs> And right, you right. Know, you can have great projections coming from parents and and their hopes and whatnot, uh, but then when you go through school, it's like, uh, no, this was not for me. But you don't know it un- until you've been through it. So my recommendation usually, when someone has felt like an initial resonance, an initial attraction to a system, for instance, Crowley system, uh, I usually say that uh, you know go along as as much as you uh, can. I mean, if it's a complete turnoff, then of course stop it. But it's sometimes it's good to go through uh, an entire uh, system to basically see if it if there's something there, not sort of this uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, leave it behind after only you know a year of practice. It usually takes longer than that to fully assess what's going on. Um, but at the same time, I have also great respect for people who are complete you know psychonauts in a way uh, solitaires lone wolves hermits who completely intuitively orient themselves on the path uh, without any need of structure or organized schooling and i think maybe that could be a more viable and relevant way today because if you need information of a particular kind it's readily available that's one of the benefits of of the internet and then you could argue well some information needs to be taught or you know going through initiations well that may be the case but some people are uh, hermits already from the from the get-go and they need to be on their own path so if they need any kind of information they just have to deal with it in the best possible way 
uh, I think the main thing today that's very important is that aspects of fraternal organizations, for instance, can be great, you know, whether it's something Freemasonic or, or the OTO or things like that. But often the real impetus of real uh, substantial change in someone's life comes from, I wouldn't say random or maybe random sources, uh, initial uh, individual impulses, uh, comments from relatives that sets something, uh, you know, going. Uh, and that's much more important than any kind of support you can get from a fraternal organization that, you know, regularly produces these initiate initiatory rituals that uh, are so symbolic that it takes you a lifetime to figure out whether it was a hoax. You know, <laughs> yeah. the main thing is to get to the core as fast as you can and then uh, run with that baton, you know. And, um, and I think particularly that this is important uh, in this uh, day and age, this uh, space and time that we're in, because uh, so many things are going on that constitute real threats, real tangible threats. Uh, I'm not usually like a paranoid person, but, you know, we have crazy weather here. There's crazy weather everywhere. And, you know, wars and eruptions and corruption is kind of like an uh, escalation going on. And I think then what's the antidote? Well, the antidote is as many people as possible wake up to the fact that they are their own person. They need to create their own meaningful life. Uh, and there's really nothing else because everyone else is just um, in it for the money. And that's not yeah. good enough. Yeah, that's well put. I think put. it's really good too because we um, both have really different approaches. Like we're kind of very different people. And so I think with each of our own um, perspectives and different practices and then the things that we do together on top of that that we share uh, in the page can i think yeah somebody can always find something like there's something for everyone in there um and we both also been doing this for so long that we have like a lot of different kinds of experiences and things that we share um and because it is done in this kind of day-to-day week-to-week accessible way I think that it's, you know, of course, I always, I love cut-ups. And so anybody can start with that, you know. I like things that you can kind of show people and, like, help them just, like, get going and get that spark going in themselves, you know. Yeah, I, I noticed you were writing in, in here how easy cut-ups are and how everyone knows about them, but people don't do them. And you yeah. were just encouraging people, like, no, just just go. It's super easy. Please. Go do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's true also for, for you know, uh, other kinds of magical practices like you know meditation or or uh, astral traveling or whatever you want to call it you know basically going into your inner sphere or shamanic states of mind uh, or chemical states of mind you know anything where you go into yourself and then you have amazing experiences that are completely relevant to you but we are not taught culturally to validate or to value these experiences that creates a problem because then there's a a discrepancy or or a disruption between our own experience and what you know we've been taught is real or not real so i think that's one of the key things that is very important in this um uh, general individuation process is basically to trust what you experience, you know, whether it's like very uh, abstracted on the inner planes or whether it's central input, you know, it's, it's, it's real, you know, and the thing is that if you're in a good um, structure, for instance, they will say, 
the structure will say to you that, yeah, this is interesting what you're experiencing. Keep working with it. And the bad structure will say, no, 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 it's just an illusion. You know, don't don't work with whatever it is that you're experiencing. Work with what we're providing and the stuff that you usually aim for. Uh, and I think the key thing here is to trust yourself. That's really the essence of of um, Topi, the essence of Thelema, the essence of uh, Lavey and Psychoanalysis. <laughs> yes, psychoanalysis, exactly. So all of these good things, you know, is to to really be your own. Uh, and of course, you can get stuck. You can get, you know, um, you can uh, trip and fall, and you know, um, go on weird tangents and and detours. But you know, if you trust yourself, you'll always find the way back to the main uh, path that's yours. And I think that's um, the best message there is. You know, no systems needed. Just trust whatever it is that you're experiencing, and keep interpreting that with your interpretations. No schools, no uh, cliches, no templates, nothing. Just uh, truly be a thinking, sensing, um, critical human being. So talk about that individuation process when done in tandem as a couple, like how it changes, what what third mind emerges out of that, what difficulties there might be in, in coordinating that. Harold, do you want to talk? Do you want to talk? No, you go ahead. <laughs> um, well, it's definitely been a process and I don't think there's been much difficulties. I think we definitely like play off of one another. Um, and yeah, I mean, Carl has such a like rich history in the occult that he's taught me so much. And of course I was reading his books before I met him. So I knew about him a long time ago. Um, and so I think that's been really helpful. And I think I've helped Carl maybe break out of these systems that he was in a bit um, and get a little bit of more fire burning, like less intellect. I mean, he's still very intellectual <laughs> and thinking all the time. <laughs> but uh, but I think maybe like getting more into the body, getting more sensual, like getting more into the dirt and not just like re write, reading and writing all the time and doing like symbolic kind of uh, rituals, you know? Um, and then I think it's been nice. We, I mean, we've done a lot of cut up work together and music. Um, Carl's the first person I didn't ever know I was going to have music, but, uh, you know, I was making all these cut up poems when I was in New York. And then I was like, oh, maybe, maybe Carl will like my cut up poems. So I like sent him some recordings of me, like reading my cut up poems, spoken word. And then he just sent them back, um, set to music. And that's how wow. I started kind of making this music, which, which I love now. And I listen to my music all the time. <laughs> as I work on my cut-up novel that I'm working on now. Um, so it's definitely like a feedback loop. And then Carl also has like taken the music that he's made with my spoken word and then set it to film. And then we like printed out stills from the films and I collaged onto them. And then we showed those in like exhibitions. So it's just like this constant kind of creative feedback loop that's really great. Um, and then like on the Patreon, we, we, we post, I, I at first only felt comfortable writing about stuff on the Patreon just because I am a psychologist. And so, you know, I don't want people like looking for a psychologist and they find me like, yeah, I mean, I already come up with like the occult and all this stuff, but like, they don't need to know too much about my personal life just from a Google search, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I need to keep a little bit of a, a boundary there. Um, it's enough that I have like books about Magic Monday and stuff like that out there. Um, and Anton LaVey and stuff. Um, 
but uh, but that's why it was more comfortable for me to kind of write more personally about behind the paywall. And then, but we do make it available for everybody there. So it's like any, any level you're at five dollars, you get everything. Um, but then we do have like a group that's called like the Twenty Third Mind Group that we've been kind of brought back the Topi sigil rituals with, and we've been kind of talking to them once a month on the Twenty Third and walking them through kind of making old Topi sigil. Uh, sigils and that's been really fun for us too because it's been almost a year now that we've been doing that and I must say those things really work especially when you keep keep it focused like that and keep the focus every month I feel like they're kind of yeah we're shooting our magic leaps and bounds at the moment Hmm. Mm. excellent and so people post kind of images back and forth of the sigils and art they're working on yeah more like writing impressions about the process Yeah, and so we, we make sure that 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 uh, people keep stuff private because it's really not none uh, of our business or or anyone's business, but share experiences from the process as such. Uh, you know, for instance, um, uh, this classical conundrum. You know, was bear right? Is it is it correct to think about the ritual done, or should one just try to forget about it? Yeah. What did what did, like you, what did you what did you what did you conclude about that? That's uh, that one comes up <laughs> no for my students a lot. Yet. No conclusions. I, I'm all in favor of the, the sort of traditional Sparian one. I believe that it works best when forgotten, and that's why it's great um, to keep it at a good frequency. You know, once a month. Uh, is is almost too seldom in a way, and I've been thinking about this also because um, uh, throughout last autumn specifically, I've gone went through my old archive, which included a lot of Topi journals and Topi material and stuff, uh, and this thing where those years were so active uh, in terms of magical practice, doing rituals uh, for each little project, and it was really like a. Uh, very energetic time and it worked so well i think because one ritual literally replaced the other so there was no time even to think back at the ritual you had just performed you may have written in your journal that you did like you know a sigil or whatever but no details about the construction of that particular glyph or anything that could be traced back to the rational mind you know so it's kind of a um, let's call it uh, speculative theory in a way. But for me, it's always worked best when you do try to, you know, keep it, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say repressed, but keep it just in the hidden, in the occult sphere. Because what you are creating with your seed in a way is a new kind of seed that will eventually grow into uh, a plant or a flower or a tree or a shrub, whatever it is you're after. But the seed needs to be in the occult. It needs to be in the soil. Uh, and given uh, nutrition of of its own kind to be able to have that um, growing process. I think that's similar to psychoanalysis too, because it's kind of a process of helping people learn to trust their unconscious and their own processes. And that you're like, just because you've consciously forgotten about it doesn't mean it's gone away. You've like implanted it right into your unconscious. And so it's always working and germinating in there. And like, you kind of see the results of what happens après coup, they call it in psychoanalysis, which means like after the fact. Um, and that's, that's how I think the best art is made. It's like, instead of thinking, okay, I'm going to say this with this work of art, you kind of like just make the art 
in a more like unconscious trance-like process. My favorite kind of art is made that way. And then you kind of learn what you had to say after the fact, like after you made it, like, oh, what did I learn through that process of making that piece? And I feel like like the sigils work in a similar way. And, and I think that's just the way we kind of work. There's so much of our mind that is unconscious that we are not aware of, uh, that we're only aware of for moments at a time, but that doesn't mean it's not there and like working all the time for us, you know? So it's kind of learning to like understand that, trust that, and pay attention to dreams, of course. And then like learning to like work with the processes as you understand more and more how you are working. So there, there's something there that is not just interesting, but has been, I think, as, as you touched on briefly, Carl, like a an ongoing debate in my own mind for a long time, which is really just mediating the boundary between the unconscious and the, the conscious. And I, I'm just remembering, I think Kenneth Grant said at one point, that he refused psychotherapy his whole life. I'm a big surprise, but uh, he, he refused psychotherapy because he didn't want the contents of the unconscious aired. He wanted basically his talismans down there producing creative work. And so that, yeah, that's always kind of a tricky one. It's like, it's the same question with like sigils. Do you expose it to your conscious or not? Do you expose your unconscious to your conscious through therapy or keep or mediate it through art? Um, that's a, that's a tricky one. Yeah, I think it's a great question, but I would, uh, tell Kenneth Grant and, and, um, and perhaps also you in this question that, you know, uh, maybe one shouldn't put all the eggs in the same basket, you know, maybe there are different ways of, of, um, finding a good balance between the unconscious and the conscious. And also, of course, keeping it, uh, keeping the vessel tight in this individuation journey. And there are so many ways you can do it. You know, some people are magicians. Some people are uh, mystics. You know, some people work with all the, the magical toolbox with wands and daggers and stuff. Other people meditate, you know, uh, and, and work on, on the inner planes to act, create actual physical change in the outer. So there are all of these things um, that we cannot but call it experimental. <laughs> also for the fact that, you know, science so-called hasn't really, you know, uh, said that, well, yeah, magic works, you know, and they probably never will. But that's besides the point. That doesn't make magic less efficient for people in their individuation process. Uh, no validation like that is really needed. It's just like... Um, I don't know. I think the the um, analogy to to the internet and email and this kind of communication and what we're doing now uh, is is a it's a very good uh, metaphor or or um, analog situation. You know, I cannot explain what's going on right now, but you are there, Jason. We are here, and we're communicating in so called in real life. Let's yeah, we so. don't know, have to know exactly how it works. <laughs> no, we don't have to know, you know, <laughs> know that it the, works. The nodes <laughs> or the, you know, cellular system or right. a, a cable of a fiber. What's that? You know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's completely, for me, redundant information. The main thing is that we can do it. And of course, it's all fantastic. But had we talked about this, uh, uh, say 300 years ago we would have all been burned at the stake right you know because it's like it's heretical <laughs> and we are as magicians we're always a step ahead 
You know, we can talk about things like we, we're third minding this or we're sigilizing this or we're uh, telepathy icing this. You know, it, these are concepts that um, may draw smirk, you know, uh, and look down upon as being some kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, superstitious or something belonging to fairy tales. It's the same kind of dynamic that's been going on um, basically in Western culture. Uh, yeah, since time began. <laughs> uh, and it's still happening in the same way. The, the big difference now, though, is that it, the cat is really out of the bag. Mm-hmm. You know, the magic cat is out of the bag. And I see that as a good thing. I don't think, you know, um, the occulturation process, when things move from the occult into the mainstream culture, is a great thing right now it wasn't you know uh, 100 years ago when it really began because with psychoanalysis and and sort of deeper psychology uh quantum physics you know when you really start people started looking at deeper aspects of our physical uh, lives and our behavior and all these things uh that was kind of a floodgate it opened a floodgate that we are now the black tide of the occult (laughs) Now sort of we're on top of that a heap of stuff that came through the floodgates, and most of them are actually very, very, very good and very useful. But how uh, to to you know what should we use? Well, for me, the answer is simple: is resonance, intuitive resonance. You disregard whichever religion you were born into, or kind of system people thought that you would go into, you know, because. I don't know, you know, uh, if p- people in Scandinavia should only be working with the runes. I don't buy that. Hmm. Or people coming from India should only work with you know, the Vedic system or whatever. I think that the um, the resonance that you you find while initially researching these things is what you should go for. And I can't explain why it is. Maybe it's Jung's collective unconscious. You know, maybe you've been here before, but in different uh, shape. So you have some of that in your baggage, and that's why you're interested in it. I don't know. It could just be pure romanticism also. Uh, But I think it's very important to go in the direction where that very spontaneous attraction leads you. Hmm. And as far as like the difference between like, should should I make art or go to therapy? I think also could be like different at different points in your life. So there might be a time in your life where analysis is really useful and helps you get unstuck. If, if you like find yourself mired down in like patterns that you can't seem to get yourself out of. Um, and then of course, I think art, art making is always helpful. And I feel like everybody's creative in some way, whether they like call it art or not, even if it's like someone who likes to like garden or rearrange their house or whatever, there's like, all different ways that people can be creative and i think that's really important to nurture whatever creative interests people have yeah one thing that really struck me about the book that is in line with i've been what i've been thinking since the pandemic started really is the importance of art as local culture and one thing that really uh, i thought was awesome about all the stuff you're sharing in these books is you're, you're both doing all these different types of, of art forms it's like poetry, cut-ups, there's a play in there at one point, you know, movies, music, it's wonderful. And I think people really suffer or, you know, struggle under some, some anti-creative, anti-magical assumptions in this, in this society. And you were mentioning some of them earlier. I think the 
inherent belief that your own internal world is worthless unless you can somehow monetize it and make money out of it, which is automatically takes it out of the realm of, of direct connection. Well, it just is what it is. Um, and also the idea that you have to only do kind of one art form and stick with that your whole life. So it's like reclaiming art as just something that is part of your life process, maybe without lust of result, I think is very, very power powerful, particularly now when people are so phone addicted and, and, you know, at least in the U S not given uh, educations in the arts. So. No, these are the things that are devalued by society, right? Like art, art's always losing its funding uh, and being cut. And, and yeah, forget about talking about magic. You know, it's like uh, they throw you in the loony bin. That's the other thing with being a magician, you know, and going to therapy. It's hard to find an analyst or a therapist that you can actually talk openly about this Yeah, talk stuff. about that, please, because I think a lot of people that listen to the show would, would like to hear your thoughts on how to go about that. Because that's a question I get from people all the time. It's like, I want to find a therapist, but I'm scared to because I don't want somebody to drug me and lock me up. And that may be a irrational fear or it might be a rational one in some cases but certainly it could, yeah, it could be, it could be awkward. a rational one it has a long history right and i think it is very hard i think it might be getting easier now but it's still like even though we see progress it's still like such a small uh, group of therapists that are open um honestly you can have people email me and i can help them find referrals because it is really difficult and like uh you know, that's one of the things that made me start being more and more open about magical practices because literally like every patient I've ever seen at some point has like something that they come in that they're like afraid to talk about or they have to preface with like, I know this sounds crazy, but this and this happened, like talking about synchronicities or talking about like, you know, deceased loved ones that they're like talking to or like, you know, ancestors that are visiting or little rituals that they do, you know, everyone is so afraid to talk talk about it um, because it is really pathologized and it is seen as superstitious. And one of the things that I really thought was messed up, uh, like when you're in school becoming a psychologist, like I'm from Miami originally. So it's like, okay, you know, if people are living in a certain way and then they, and they're talking to their, you know, ancestors, their dead grandmother or something like that's, that's crazy. That's psychotic unless they're like from this culture. So like mm. if, if it's in line, if your internal beliefs are in line with the culture that you grew up in, then it's not pathologized. It's still seen as crazy, say in the U S but like, say if you're from Haiti, then it's okay. Cause that's like more culturally bound. And I thought that idea in itself was like completely screwed up. So it's like, Oh, you're only, allowed to think a certain way if it's uh, acknowledged by the culture you're in it's like well we wouldn't get very far at all if everyone yeah, was like that that doesn't seem so, very logically thought the, yeah it's a, the, the way they teach psychologists is really yeah difficult and uh, it's really really hard to find somebody hmm. but you do think that's changing I do think it's changing because there's a lot of people that are like, you know, you see like therapists that like tarot on Instagram and things like that, you know. So I think that that's helpful. And I just personally know people that are therapists that also, even if they're not maybe as mired in the occult as we are, they're open to it. Um, okay. So they at least won't like, you know, think that you're crazy. Well, there's also the like the massive push to popularize psychedelics that's happened in the last 10 plus years. Uh, maybe that has changed things. I know. I know. Certainly, people are open to th things like 
psilocybin therapy or ketamine therapy. These are becoming very accessible, you know, even in even in um, parts of the U.S. you wouldn't expect. So uh, maybe that hopefully opens the conversation a bit. It, it is a shame to have such um, antagonistic walls between these uh, between these um, systems or organizations. I mean, I, ha- I ended up getting into a huge fight with the head of the International Psychoanalytic Society here at a, at a conference in New York. And it was just like completely ridiculous. It was like, they're so threatened by the idea of the occult. It's just like, well, you know, well, you just gave a, a lecture for an hour about how Freud never cured anyone and one of his students committed suicide and how interesting that is. It's like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> I guess you're the, you're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also Freud was doing. I'm giving a talk in September about this at the Vic- Victor Weird Museum. Um, Freud was into like telepathy and doing like thought transference experiments and all this stuff, really, like in secret, you know, and like just presenting it to his little like secret group, you know. So T- talk about that. I didn't. I didn't it. know anything about that. Please talk about that. Oh yeah, he 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 used to do literal thought thought transference experiments. He called them, which is like telepathy, where he would do experiments like with his daughter and Sandor Ferenzi, which is like this uh, old school analyst that was one of his best friends. And even you know he gave Jung a lot of crap, you know, for believing in the occult and having magical thinking. And people often cite that as like the reason that they split. But it was more, I mean, it was more clearly just like a relationship issue between the two of them they were yeah really close and then had a bad breakup basically um but uh but Freud still even though he like publicly like dismissed Jung's ideas and things um he still practiced these thought transference experiments and after Jung after Jung and him split this is still a big problem in the field with like you know all these different schools of thought and nobody talks to each other and everybody argues and how to train an analyst and you know you can trace it all the way back to this like original split between Freud and Jung because when you know Jung just basically started having he was the pupil and then he started having his own ideas and then the master of Freud didn't like that and wanted him to like get in line and he didn't he didn't want to um because he needed to practice in his own way which is very healthy and that's individuation you know, yeah. <laughs> as we're talking about and then when that happened Freud became like so possessive over psychoanalysis that he like formed like a little secret society where he gave like all the analysts in it which was like six or eight of them like their own ring that they would wear at their <laughs> meetings you know I mean how cool is that come what? on <laughs> that that sounds like that sounds like the, the the breakdown in the NLP community in the late 80s or whenever it was when they decided that realized no one had trademarked it and somebody was going to have to like get control of it because people were making money. Um, yeah, and it, and it sounds like a standard mentor student relationship if it's not healthily managed or maybe that just is how it has also to be it's true for 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 you know for the occult history too like any yeah. order goes through the same dynamics it's just group dynamics it's just group dynamics yeah. yeah okay so you think that's all the those kind of splits are all healthy and good i think they're inevitable. it's just how it is yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if people are all healthy and good, but that's just how we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, there. I think when those things happen, it's hopefully in the quest of going towards greater health and integration. One would hope. Let's just say that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think again, you know, uh, people who break away or sort of the new kid on the block who sort of wants to show off. 
it's it's all you know just human development and again in this kind of individuation process i do think it's healthy because uh, organizations that become too rigid too you know um too ruled by a philosophy for instance or a religion or you know other cultic <laughs> issues uh, they if there's no renewal in terms of conflict and resolving the conflict they become inert you know it's just to become stagnant death yeah yeah dogma is when it turns into a dogma it's never good and that's what always happens right you break away from the dogma and then it becomes its own dogma and i've been thinking a lot recently like okay the big the big analysts you know most famous ones are freud and Jung and lacan right and what did they all do they all developed their own system that's basically based on themselves right so like they basically developed their own system of psychology based on looking at their own mind and the mind of their patients which of course is full of the way they're looking at their patients and projecting on them as well Hmm. so i'm starting to think more about like how people shouldn't just be like trying to follow these masters like to the letter of what they're saying just like the same thing with the like you know older kind of systems of thought and the occult and other other things but like more just like the the path that these people have as a trajectory in the, in their process of individuation they've created this kind of you know theory themselves and that's what we should be doing more is kind of creating uh, something based on our own worldviews rather than just trying to kind of model ourselves off of other worldviews you do that of course at first when you're like learning and starting out but at some point you do have to break away out of those systems that kind of formed you and do your own thing yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's why it's so interesting to that you're documenting a process rather than just presenting a, a, a final result and saying this is how it is. I think the documentation of the process is so important because that's how people live on a day to day basis. You know, they don't live with they get a copy of book four by Crowley and, you know, then spend well, they do live spend the next 50 years trying to implement it, you know, but so that is a but but the problem with that is you don't get it in context. And one of the things that I really miss about magical organizations is you immediately get the context because you're with other people. They're checking you with, you know, what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. And that can be very healthy, even social, you know, some of the best magical um, times I've had have just been, you know, having drinks with people or having tea, like with Jen, for instance. Um, And it's those, informal conversations that really shape the whole thing. I think we were talking about this before, Carl, with Anton LaVey and how much is passed on in those informal conversations. And that, particularly in the kind of post-pandemic era, is no longer as much a part of culture as it was in, you know, the time before TV when everyone was involved in some Masonic, Paramasonic organization. Yeah. Um, and now it's the internet, but I think that things like what you're doing and the ability to share video, even just YouTube and podcasts is so valuable because it gives people the context and all the unspoken things and where an idea that you have fits in relation to your personality and whether you seem reasonable or not, you know, it's like people are always making those judgments all the time and those are important judgments. And it's, you know, if you're going to listen to somebody about magic being real and all this insane stuff, you definitely want to ascertain that they have their head on right, you know? So I think that's very helpful. Yeah, but at the same time, we do also, like, leave the slips. Like, it's not edited, right? Yeah. It's just, like, really raw. So, like, you can also see, like, yeah, the child and error kind of things. And the thing I love also that I'm realizing is that, like, 
at least for me, my magic is really like unconscious in a way where I don't really realize what I'm doing when I'm doing it. I mean, I think that just happens after you've practiced something for a long enough time. It just kind of becomes second nature. You don't really conceptualize it in the same way as when when you maybe first did. I feel like the same way as a psychoanalyst. You don't have to think, oh, I'm applying this theory or this is happening now. You just like do it automatically, right? But like like we mentioned being new homeowners, I think maybe before we were recording, but like after putting these books together, I could see like we were doing magic to like find our home, but we didn't know we were going to move you know and then it's like oh look we went to this place like we went to all these different sites in sweden and brought our runes and kind of did all these rituals and then we ended up in this like place that was like perfect and you could see how those all those kind of rituals like fit together to like kind of find this place but i didn't know that's what we were doing we were just like doing things kind of intuitively that's one of the most valuable things about magical records for me is you really don't know what you're doing. But if you go back and read even your dream journal for the last year, all of a sudden, all this stuff comes out. It's just in plain sight. You, all this stuff you were trying to tell yourself at the time and the patterns and the themes. And it's like, wow, I really should have paid more attention. Um, yeah. So that's that- exactly it. You have to express what you have on the inside, whether it's only for your own journal or whether this is some kind of artistic expression that you might or might not want to share with someone else. You know, that's the important thing because that's a validation in itself, isn't it? It's not only what you have on the inside, you bring it out by the expression, you know, you give it form, uh, you spell it out. I mean, there you have the sort of the magical connection and it's, it's very, you know, it's healthy and it can create change. And it's not doesn't have to be more complex or complicated than that. You know, just bring whatever you have on the inside out. And I think that's there, there are many things, um, uh, like Vanessa said, that when we go sort of post facto and <laughs> look back at what we've written or published, you know, it's like, oh, this had to do with that. And it's just amazing. And and uh, uh, as you know, I you know, have this... Um, affliction of being a printed matter junkie you know i have to produce printed matter and one of the things was um this uh what well, is kind of a journal or an art book uh, called uh, the tripartisan review uh, where i just you know invited people the within the network um some of them have been in the network for a long time others are fairly new and just you know send whatever you have in this sort of uh, anarchic way and it turned out into a great book and i said you know uh, I don't like the postmodern approach where everything is explained ad nauseum. You know, I don't want to go down that route. I just want to make a fun art book, trippy, you know, good stuff. Um, however, I did write a tiny, tiny um, editorial or uh, forward where I sort of assumed that people who in the know, so-called, would look at this and they would say, well, this is just outsider art. Hmm. So I said... Uh, sort of stole it already before they'd expressed it and said, here's an example of insider art, meaning these are people who they're just looking inside and bringing out whatever it is that they're doing. Some may be working with it professionally, some may be complete amateurs or doing this for the first time, but the expression is pure, you know, Uh, and that is as valid for someone who may not be a writer, but still writes a book or a journal about their magical process. It's so important that people, you know, validate what it is that they're experiencing and then express it, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, because how else will you learn? You know, if you're completely disrespected and culture disrespects you and says that it's just like fantasy, you're insane, um, 
you know, borderline psychotic, whatever. Uh, how can you be strong and resilient and, and say that, but what I'm experiencing is so fantastic. And I think you mentioned there with um, the beginnings of this past decade of, of psychedelic therapy of different kinds. I mean, the psychedelic experience is in a similar way, you know, where you can be absolutely overwhelmed by what you're experiencing during the trip. But then when you come down, you know, so, well, you know, it was just, it was just a trip. It was really nothing. But during the time, you made these incredible connections that were, that were at the time completely potentially life-changing. Mm -hmm. And that's the big threat, isn't it? That you have to, have to sort of rewire your real life, not just um, during the trip, but also afterwards. But yeah. usually my experience is that when you do trust those things, um, the big insights uh, and go with that flow, it, it pays off like mm. crazy. What's an example of that? Well, an example of that could be, for instance, coming to an insight during a trip that, uh, wow, I really don't like that person. Whereas in the normal rational frame of mind, uh, you can say that, well, you know, it's not my favorite person, but, you know, still we share a lot of things. So we try to create these sort of, um, uh, I don't know, um, positive things that are not genuinely rooted and during a psychedelic um experience for instance you may have those insights where everything is so crystal clear that you cannot shy away from yeah. it but that's unfortunately what a lot of people do after the fact hmm. because we don't have those tools to validate the psychedelic experience i i do believe that it's increasing in in um in value because it has now been integrated into a scientific or you know medical um, community which is great but i mean those things you know what's good what's bad what's yes what's no and based on crystal clarity that you can have during a psychedelic illumination talk about that and i think the internet too has really um helped people popular culture become more weird basically because people are able just to directly like be themselves online with everyone and it's kind of yeah everybody's like you know posting memes all the time how you're supposed to look all together but inside you're like insane or falling apart or something and it's like everyone's seeing that everyone's kind of feeling that way and is able to put out their own music there's like much less gatekeeping at least you know in the beginning of course now it's like getting all corporatized but you're still able to get things like this out like podcast and things uh, there's not so much gatekeeping whereas before all the media was totally gatekeeped by you know control right talk about the fear of self-expression because i'm sure as everyone is aware it's like we have more tools like you're saying we have more tools and ability than ever before to express ourselves yet people are terrified to express themselves now because they may say the you know anyone could see something online they may say the wrong thing or somebody may become fixated on them or um and so that that's a very uncomfortable place for culture to be in and it almost like it's like almost two steps forward or one step forward two steps back in a way yeah and it's totally like an orwellian uh, nightmare you know, where, where it's, uh, censorship is no longer needed because you have self-censorship. You know, it's a, it's a culture of inhibition where the, the most superficial flaunters 
become incredibly uh, successful by showing nothing really. Yeah. And when you have someone really shows something and, and so honest, no one's interested. A genuine expression, <laughs> then it's like, oh, look at that weird doctor. You know, yeah. it, it, it's very strange. It's kind of a weird dichotomy. But I, I do think that it's the same thing again. You simply have to, to uh, trust that whatever it is you're experimenting with is worth the while. And, and uh, most people who do stick with it and, you know, carry on um, despite backlashes or criticism or mockery, whatever, you know, they will be better for it because they will just be strengthened mm -hmm. and, and with a stronger spine, stronger system, resilience, and um, main, the main fuel being this um, knowledge or awareness or consciousness that what I'm producing is great because it's entirely mine. You know, it's not affected by what other, other people think. Um, I'm not too tainted by other people. And if I am, I will acknowledge that and give them either credit or, or you know, criticism. But the main thing is to, to be just... Um, constantly on um, on the road in a way and whatever you meet in terms of um, you know good things and bad things you have to acknowledge you know integrate acknowledge and and somehow if it touches something you know in a resonance um, within you you have to express it you know it's almost like a little um, duty or obligation at least to yourself it's not about necessarily flaunting your experience, but but it's your own trip. It's your own record. I think, too, it's also like it's a process, right? And everyone has their own kind of like pace of the process. And like Carl, of course, has been very public since the 80s, right? Um, being like, you know, Satan and whatever. And like for me, I was I was like a normal psychologist, <laughs> up until about 10 years ago um and so like for me it was like more of a gradual process of getting comfortable like just with other people knowing who i am in general like oh people online like recognize me and i don't know who they are and that's weird and then like you know knowing things that i do and um you know that that really didn't even come from me at first that came from jen and carl and being associated with them um and then i just kind of had to get used to it but then when i do see like how how much people are kind of nervous about coming out of their shell about things that just makes me you know feel like I need to do it more and more just to be able to help other people do it as well and I think it's really important for people to be supportive of each other um, and I think this like magical community generally pretty much is I mean everyone I've met has been pretty supportive um, and just knowing that like even if you get flack for it by maybe some community you just know like that that's not your community then you know and, and if you're going to resonate with some people that are like-minded or you're going to help other people like come out of their shell a little bit more just by doing it yourself um, I think that's really important yeah I'm constantly getting flack online I have been for 20 years and People love to post. I mean, by the way, people who write these threads, I do read them. Um, love to post huge threads about how I'm this, that, and the other. Or I'm a scam artist, or all this stuff. And I'm always just like, well, then don't don't listen to my show if you don't like it. Like, yeah. right? Like, you don't, can turn don't, it off. Don't pay, if you don't <laughs> if you think that you know, like you know, Magic.me courses, you shouldn't have to pay for them. Don't pay for them. Problem solved. You know, it's like don't take the courses. You don't. It's, it's, it's go do it your own way. Like. Um, so I, I don't understand the 
there's so much out there. There's something for everyone on the internet. So I don't understand why people like stew on things they don't like. It's like, move on, go, go to something else. They love it. They get off on it. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) But talk about the mediating kind of the boundary of a relationship with what you're putting out in public, because that's a pretty brave thing to do. And although I am constantly putting content out on the internet, uh, I don't talk about my personal life really at all. I don't talk about relationships. I don't talk about anything outside of my job, basically. And I I like it that way because I think there is value to having not everything online, having things that are personal and private. So it's a pretty brave thing to, you know, even to do a relationship in public, whether it's an artistic collaboration or not. So talk, talk about how that process has been for you. Mm. I think that uh, we do have many things that are, that are personal and private, um however uh not really of the magical kind and and again this is fo- very m- focused on on um i don't know i wouldn't say occult it, that word in itself has so many um you know uh, meanings in a way but magical stuff meaning the transformative transcendental stuff based in a culture that we both share meaning a kind of fairly recent tradition where you integrate art and creative expression into magical thinking and magical praxis two key uh, actually three key um nodes in in this lineage tradition would of course be jan barros geisen you know further back you find other things that perhaps slightly more occult occult but that kind of thing um um you know, talking and writing about our experiences of working with this and our networking experiences and um, uh, insights along the way, results, um, sometimes even errors occurring. Um, It's basically like um, being at work and writing about your work, right? But we work together, so thereby becomes a relationship thing. Um, And it's uh, for me, it's just like great fun. Uh, And the things that we don't write about, it's literally no one's business, you know? And I don't think the strength of the material is not um, how much we divulge about, uh, you know, uh, are really personal issues. It's about the fact that we are sharing a platform, which for simplicity's sake, we can call magic or the third mind dealing with uh, magical things. Um, it is the honesty. The, 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 the key thing that I think people appreciate, simply the honesty, because it's uh, the culture we live in and people take in, I guess, most of the stuff now via their phones, or, or that kind of technology, and it's hacked up in these tiny, tiny fragments, and even stuff that is potentially substantial, uh, potentially life-altering in a way, is just presented to us in these little meme bites. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that um, it's better to have a regularity like we do to keep up the momentum in a way and to keep it fresh for us also when I write, when Vanessa writes and when we write together and talk about these things. Yeah, but I think also that that um, the anthologizing and specifically putting it into book form turns it into something else. Uh, it becomes contextualized, but it also becomes like a being in itself. Mm-hmm. And we, we got a comment just the other day um, when we had posted like a video thing on the Magic Monday 
Patreon. And, and someone said that um, it's basically great, but they love to write long texts in printed form, right? And we are the same. So I think a lot of people can relate to that, that the material comes from my pen, my mouth, Vanessa's mouth, Vanessa's pen, our minds. But then it's sort of presented on a weekly basis. That's one thing on an internet-based platform. And then we uh, anthologize it in book form. And then we might, you know, have some lectures in there that have also been presented face-to-face or this kind of uh, thing. So it's it's a, a process that has many uh, layers, many levels of uh, potential interaction. And I guess that's the process that's going on too. We're assessing and evaluating what feels best for us also, because we know that we can do it. We can write about magic once a week. We can make books. We can talk to you, you know, um, but we want to make it challenging also for, for us and see what's happening in terms of technology. I mean, we just started a, um, Substack also mm-hmm. um, that that's also focused on the Magic Monday to see if we can reach some new people in that people who are more used to feel more comfortable using like a Substack kind of newsletter thing than to be online and write the uh, read the Patreon or go to a lecture that we're doing or buy the book via Amazon or um, you know wherever they buy books. So it's it's kind of a multifaceted uh, thing which keeps it very, very exciting for us, I think. And if it were only one thing, I think it would actually become inert after a while. Mm. You you need this kind of uh, tension and excitement and checking things out also. What are some... It's like a living multimedia artwork. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And on that note of multimedia artwork, what are some ways that you've integrated new technology into what you're doing maybe in the last year or two, I I noticed some references to AI in in the books. Uh, Yeah, I'm very critical. (laughs) I'm critical. I think that um, in terms of AI, I think, um, I don't know, people should read more science fiction basically. And, And also realize that popular culture of that kind, meaning, you know, not necessarily highbrow culture, but but just like mainstream culture and, and um, maybe even lowbrow culture uh, carries the seed of the future. <clears throat> and I think that with uh, AI, I mean, it's just like, you don't have to be like a pulp fiction. I don't, I don't mean the film. I mean, like these pulpy magazines of science fiction and horror and um, you don't have to be an avid fan or an aficionado of that kind of culture to realize that people have been writing about these dystopic scenarios for a long, long time, which is great, sort of, but it's also the future leaking through, right? Mm. You know, the kids who read those became the scientists of a couple of decades later. Yeah. They were imbued with that kind you of created. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, an AI, you said, what happened with AI in the science fiction? Well, didn't they become sort of a semi-sentient and then eventually sentient being that controlled the grid, that controlled the platforms, uh, that controlled basically human life because we have enslaved ourselves to the technology, not necessarily even the technological overlords. Because I think that I came up with a term the other day, the technological overlords are basically um, autistic machine people. 
you know they're not they they are fully human but they are they're so enamored by their own you know promethean kind of um uh, sense of innovation that they disregard looking at what could potentially happen and i think you know we we went to see the oppenheimer movie and i think that's the same thing he was an autistic machine uh, person and i think the people leading you know x or twitter or or any other platform they they're the same you know they cannot see the full picture even though all they have to do is go down to barnes and noble and you know get a good science fiction anthology from 1950 for instance and then they could read about exactly what's going to happen and it's not going to be good so i'm very critical and i don't think um uh, i would even want to integrate ai in my own magical process although I do respect people who feel that inclination because it is an interesting interaction of a kind of four third mind thing. Um, and I say four because it's not at one human mind uh, interacting with another human mind. It's still an artificial intelligence. And although appealing on an experimental level, I think I will not use it. I think actually I will use even more organic stuff meaning your cars go more, more analog yeah you started my, you're using film again and taking photos with film yeah, yeah. And stuff. <laughs> yeah that could be uh, actually nostalgia too <laughs> but, yeah. but what i mean is more more uh work with myself uh more primitive ways of reaching transcendence uh and the the classical you know of power thing and just yeah. like being rooted in the body and that kind of almost primordial uh, experience because uh, I simply love it and I know that it's magically very very potential and I cannot see that that um, uh, technology could ever replace that uh, perhaps on a kind of a manipulative level of magic you know the mimetic magic the meme magic the sort of the chaos magical aspects of spreading information or spreading disinformation to achieve some some goal but i'm i'm very um uh, much at the point now where i want to go into the uh not primordial but let's call it the uh, uh the physical and how to use the physical uh and the um accumulated knowledge that we have inherently in our gene pool what you know what's very called this kind of atavistic resurgence that you can come in contact with earlier uh, levels of development and use that for your magical benefit and development i find that still much more appealing and revealing than creating some kind of um i don't know monster is a strong word but i almost believe that humans in general are creating a technological monster with ai and it will be very very hard to uh, to stop because we're all connected you know, for good and bad yeah it'll be impossible to stop i think and yeah. I, I agree although i would perhaps push back on the characterization characterization of autistic people since it seems that almost literally I, sometimes it seems that almost everyone i know is on the autism spectrum and i, I yeah, think i but think i added machine people 
So specifically machine yeah, people. Yeah, I don't think you mean like autistic diagnosis, but okay. more autistic no. that you're like kind of self and Got it. Yeah. 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 And there are people like that. Yeah. Blinder people. Blinder people. Blinders on. Yeah, I was just I was just gonna say I've, I've, in my experience a lot of people on the spectrum are actually hyper empathetic and and if anything see patterns that other people don't yeah. and maybe say like wait you really don't you know wait, they see where this yeah. is going so in some cases exactly. no well what i mean is that some people who are very innovative they have a tunnel vision right and the tunnel vision can turn sure. into blinders where you no longer see the implications and applications of what it is that you're creating you're only watching the creative creation and that of course can be completely enchanting literally enchanting you know um and specifically if you're also you can see daily that you are changing culture whether it's with electric cars or personal computers or or uh, development of the internet in space so you know all these things are pretty they're all sci-fi mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's all science fiction happening right now so of course you get enchanted and mesmerized by your own creations you know it's it, i guess it's only natural yeah science However, go ahead yeah no i think that that um Again, you know, you don't need to distance yourself a lot to realize that the implications of this or that could also be horrendous. And that's exactly, I think, you know, Oppenheimer's dilemma in a way. He succumbed to um, patriotism in a way, uh, also succumbed to uh, peer pressure because the academic world um, had kind of an ambivalent view about him. Um, So there are many things that you know, very, very personal, emotional things that can be triggers for some things that really affect change in the world. But usually those people are not really individuated. It's like, seems to be more random, you know. Oppenheimer is interesting because he was so fixated on like Hindu theology and and the Vedas and things like that, which is, I don't know if I haven't seen the movie. I did see Barbie, which I loved. Uh, It was an incredible (laughs) movie. Uh, but I have not we seen saw that day, you know, back to we back. We did the whole weekend thing. Oh, how, how was we did that? the Barbenheimer weekend. But how was that for you? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think both films were great, actually. But it's also... Barbie was both, better. Yeah, Barbie was better. But Barbie's <laughs> also very symptomatic about uh, or of the times we're living in, right? Because it's, it's funny and cute and smart and very ironic and sort of acutely critical of this and that. But at the same time, it's also a huge commercial for Mattel, you know, yeah. the, the company that has the Barbie, because they are co-producers. So basically, they're making a commercial about one of their most best-selling product. And now I saw that the, the film has grossed, I mean, in ticket sales over a billion dollars. And it's the, the record for a woman director, which is uh, absolutely great. But it's still Mattel making money off of being ironic about their doll that they're also making money off of. And right. selling. Yeah, yeah. Barbies are flying off the, the, the show. The cynicism <laughs> of that is so brilliant, you know. I, and, you know, uh, I think, um, I don't want to put words in LaVey's mouth, but he would surely say that it's a satanic scheme. <laughs> I thought it was brilliant, though. I, I, I felt... I felt Barbie, I was very touched by it. I felt like it was a very surprisingly deep movie. And I think it was yeah. uh, a, an incredibly deep and prescient commentary on gender relations in the form of a Barbie movie. It was incredible. I, I almost would go out on a limb and say it was a bit of a ritual in itself because I felt altered. I felt like I was knuff after I came out of the yeah. movie. I think I think you're right. And and I, I base that on the, the, the negative reactions the film has had uh, within environments that are not so open-minded. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't get that. How can you have a negative reaction to that? I guess if you're the super right wing and you're like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I don't. I think it was very fair. I don't think that it was. You know, it was certainly not an anti men movie at all. I think everyone yeah. has a it lot to learn fun. from that. I want to yeah. go see it again. Carl doesn't yeah. want to see it again, but I'm going to go back and nice. see it yeah. again myself. Yeah. No, I, I liked it a lot, but but for me, the cynicism is sort of supreme in that sense, where where irony is now something that is cool and yeah and and um, this huge toy company can produce a movie about its favorite toy let's make it a little bit critical but you know in actual fact it's just a great big commercial advertising film that's interesting i mean it really is this kind of like late capitalism thing where everything in that movie collapses it's like more because because kind of like the making movies with the merchandise tied in already started in maybe even the late (laughs) 70s i think but with star wars but but yeah. but this is to a level where it's just all the confluences of all those things merge into one. It's like one. Okay. It's like the uber corporate art form. Yeah, uh, that exactly. is also positive. I think for for the world. So that was yeah. pretty cool. And we found it especially funny too that that uh, at the board meeting with. Um, when the, uh, yeah he's, he said that you know what's you know what was it like in barbie land and and um he replied that think of a small town in sweden <laughs> is that true yeah I would say so. that's in, where we live it's pretty yeah. cute you live in you live in barbie land <laughs> it's pretty cute out here so how did oppenheimer uh pair up with that i'm it, it seems uh, it seems kind of grim and like a slog it wasn't from a distance. funny <laughs> okay. no, I, I just, I, I just um, it's a well-made film yeah but i actually have left i had more empathy for for Oppenheimer before i watched the film but of course you don't know how accurate the film is but exactly. i used to think of him as someone who just got his kind of scientific knowledge and work like co-opted by the government into this mm. thing that like yeah is the atom bomb um yeah. but then as far as the film goes he was kind of like all for it he's like yeah let's go and was just like you know getting his colleagues to come with him to go build this thing you know so uh yeah he, he seemed much less ambivalent during the process and then after the fact then started seeing like that he was getting more ambivalent and like guilt-ridden but it's like well well that's convenient that's, con- that's convenient that that's convenient he <laughs> yeah. wanted to be yeah. maybe, like, maybe he... i don't really feel bad for you now no yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like no, that's exactly that kind of tunnel vision I was talking about, you know, where someone becomes enamored by their own creation because it is fascinating and you can see amazing progress and science that no one has done before and, you know, amazing results. But in this case, it was just um, uh, co-opted from the get-go to be applied and not even necessarily for nuclear energy, you know, like for, you know, power plants that would provide us with great electricity in this booming time. It was for for uh, massive destruction. Yeah, you know. So so, and it was no, you know, no. Yeah, they had a board that. meeting too of like all these guys sitting around trying to decide what city they were going to bomb in yeah. Japan. It was just like it's so disturbing, which I'm sure happened. That's, in, that's in the that movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one to think about. And I was thinking about Oppenheimer in relation to AI. Um, in uh, in 2017, I was work. Uh, Google wanted me to work on the um, like artist and machine intelligence program. Kind of like they wanted my opinion on it. So, mm. um, 
And the AI, the more I read about it, the more scary it became. And I realized it's like, this is, this is literally a civilization ending invention. And anyone who doesn't yeah. see that, it's just like, just, if you just see the amount that's happened in the last six months with, with chat GPT, um, which I use every day, by the way, it's been an incredible boon to everything that I do. Um, so I am enamored with it, but on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, this is going to have tremendous consequences. And, and when I was reading about AI progress at that time, I came to the conclusion, like, this is so, such a momentous thing that there is no precedent for it whatsoever in human history. And the only thing that possibly comes close is the Manhattan Project. So it's like, okay, well, let's go back and see what people were saying about that when they were making it. So I found a book of interviews with all the scientists that were working on the Manhattan Project. And they were all saying the same thing, which is, we knew we were building this horrible thing, but we knew that if we didn't do it, somebody else would, the, the Germans or the Russians would build it. And then, and then that would be much worse than us building it. And then that's the exact same thing that people are saying now with AI. They're like, well, if we don't build it, you know, the Russians are going to build it or the Chinese are going to build it or some, you know, yeah. some other company is going to build it. Um, and so I do unfortunately see it as, yeah, the cat's out of the bag. And so one of the great things about magic is it gives us the tools to live in a world of gods and monsters and, and navigate, you know, a world in which there are malevolent praetor human intelligences. Cause I'm sure we both dealt with a lot of them in the past, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so yeah, there's yeah, a, there's a language kind of... there. Yeah. I think also I did very, some... very... go ahead. I was just going to say, I did some uh, cutups with AI. I like Carl printed out some of these AI conversations that journalists has had and I just cut out what the AI said and did cut us with it and yeah it wasn't good what, what, what <laughs> it didn't say nice things what did it say <laughs> I can't remember but I don't have them with me but they will probably end up in a Magic Monday book so we'll send it to you <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah but I'm also fascinated about this thing where, where um, you have this incredible thing where you can actually, you know, fuse or split an atom and, and have these tremendous amounts of energy um, set free. You know, it's, it's amazing. If it weren't so destructive, you know, it would be an amazing feat. But at the same time, you know, you have this thing with with uh, Albert Hoffman working in in uh, Switzerland you know uh, you know researching ergot on rye trying to look into old customs and folklore uh, what it had been used for before and trying to to you know find um think he was studying something some kind of pain reliever for uh, for uh, women giving birth and stuff like that but then of course that turned into this uh, synthesis or the synthesizing of LSD-25 that was synthesized first in 1938. And then it was shelved because Sandoz, the company uh, that he worked for, didn't really believe in it. They went on to study, you know, uh, psilocybin instead and many other things. Uh, and then, of course, accidentally, as we know, I guess uh, April of uh, 1943, he he dosed himself by getting some LSD on his fingers, right? And he had the famous um, uh, bike ride when he was, you know, tripping and riding on his bicycle in this beautiful, beautiful uh, alpine landscape. Uh, and that really changed the world too, you know, because that's his being turned on by his own concoction in a way, uh, Hoffman's potion, uh, made him a devout, almost religious scientist. Uh, with this, with the potential and that happened at 
about the same time that the Manhattan people were working on, you know, splitting the atom. Uh, and um, if you believe in uh, a god or gods or divine justice or providence, whatever, you could see these being, um, the, what do you call it, justice holding up this scale, right? Mm -hmm. Is These two things are the things that are weighing because the impact of LSD uh, on global culture uh, in a good way, meaning cultural changes, uh, opening up of mind frames, leading to mass movements of ecology and uh, spirituality, many things that have had, you civil know, rights. yeah, re civil rights, real potential, no real actual tangible uh, effects that could be, you know, could be objectively called good. And I think that's very, very interesting because they're both uh, invisible in a way. They happen um, in um, re chemical reactions in in the brain, uh, whereas the atom is, is sort of uh, uh, in a contain little contained container and then sets a chain reaction free. It's the same thing with, with um, our minds in a way. There are containers where this little chemical agent can create chaos, and we have all of these uh, wonderful insights when the synapses and everything is trying to put the order back again, right? So there are many similar, um, I think, too many similar um, things going on uh, to disregard, you know, why did this happen at this mm -hmm. time? I mean, th there are no rational scientific explanations to that. Uh, Hoffman was an avid you know, a proselytizer in a way, and he may or may not have had a hand in, you know, um, making Sandals, the company that produced it, to become a little bit more lax in, in spreading this to uh, clinic, clinicians, doctors, psychiatrists, and then, of course, Leary's experimentation, and then the cat was out of the bag there. It only took like uh, 10 to 15 years before it was like a worldwide phenomenon. So it's just a you know a speculative issue, mm. but I do find that it's very very interesting. And of course, as you said before, uh, now psychedelic research is in the clinical environment again. That's actually where it started in the in the forties and fifties. Yeah, and that may be not coincidentally, since we need people to wake up a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's always struck me. Those two events have struck me as kind of being indicative of the. Aeon of Horus, the dawning of the Aeon of Horus. It's hard not to see yeah. Ra Rahur Kuit in the the bomb, or you know, new you know, new all the hippie stuff in in acid. Exactly, and, and the then, then we've seen that that the, the new Babylon for 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 real is Barbie. <laughs> this year, yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll Babylon. This year, Babylon is yeah. pink. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I I I, I can go with that. Um, Talk about, well, one thing that I want to ask about in that context is things go so fast now. I mean, we've been through this era of the pandemic. We've got AI now. The curve of technological progress is so staggering that it's like it's a new world every week. In my experience, things like psychotherapy and magic are long internal processes that are slow processes that do well with like like the type of stuff you're talking about just kind of like daily day-to-day -day journaling no fireworks walking in nature things like that how do you how do people maintain a magical viewpoint and a magical practice in such an accelerated and interruptible world particularly with phones and things like that 
I think you said one word there that's a key word for me and also something that we work with literally on a weekly basis, and that's the being in touch with uh, nature or greater nature or outer nature. Uh, we go on, on, we go out into the forest uh, once or twice a week, uh, little excursions, even just half an hour is so uh, invigorating, vitalizing. Uh, and of course, that's um, great that we have that, we can do that. Not everyone can. Uh, but I do think that there's tremendous um, healing in being in touch with that. And I wouldn't go so far as, you know, it's enough if you have a potted plant. But who knows in times like this? Maybe it is. that If you can keep a potted plant alive, that can be a pretty good feat. Uh, because most people that we know um, are, yeah, they're simply so fragmented that there's no, like, uh, long-term coherent strategy or, mm -hmm. or trajectory mm -hmm. you can talk about you know lofty goals and stuff like that like i would like to you know i would like for this to happen i would like for that to happen but it's very seldom connected to real hardcore um i don't know strategies yeah. to, to make that real you know um and i think that um one way of uh, counteracting or being in balance from that kind of, as you say, it's almost exponentially going faster, uh, is of course to slow things down and, you know, to meditate in nature wherever you can. You can, you know, go swim or or uh, even in a swimming pool and just be immersed in the elements somehow. Or, or if that doesn't work out, just turn off the light and meditate. Mm -hmm. Close your eyes, you know, shut off all the sounds. Uh, but in urban environment, that's close to impossible. I so, believe in carving out time for yourself in, in any way that you can or that you see fit for yourself. Like for me, of course, I love psychoanalysis. So if you can carve out you know, time for a session or two or three a week, that's great. Or just like I, I've personally like got too attached to the phone like everyone. And I had to consciously start uh like detaching from it so like i turn off my phone i don't have kids or anything like that you know so i i turn off my phone on the weekends and leave it there until monday and just like have the weekend free to make art and do other things um because i can't stand the like scrolling and checking and all of this stuff it's like i think it's just really one of my podcast guests, it was uh, Paul Miller, DJ Spooky, and he was just like talking about all the social media platforms and how they just basically make money off of keeping your attention, right? And keeping people fragmented. And when he said that, it just like struck me in a way that I was like, this is just so messed up. Like your attention is so precious and like your intention is like, you know, so important in magical practice and just day-to-day -day life. And the fact that like your attention is getting like sucked into this kind of machine like that is like, you can even see it like with our dog, for example, like when we're sitting in front of the computer, she hates it, you know, mm. and I just feel like she could see us like just going like, just, yeah. like disappearing into this machine. She's like, please come back. Um, so I think it's really important if you can turn off your phone and even if just for an hour, just like maybe that's why like, you know, yoga or meditation or swimming or anything, really anything else, making art without it. 
um, I think it's really important to like get back in touch with yourself and your body and like what did you used to do? You know, like when I'd be walking around running errands, what did I used to do besides like look at my phone when I was like, you know, waiting for something? I used to like always have a book with me and like would read a few pages of a book, you know, like when is the last time I did that? I can't even remember, you know. Mm. So like trying to get in touch with like, yeah, what I used to do before this was like all of our lives. But of course, a lot of people, you know, I'm 46. So a lot of people, you know, were born in 2000 and they don't ever remember yeah, what, what it was that's, like. That's very this. sad. So, for, that's very yeah. sad, I think. Yeah. Uh, I at least remember both ways of doing the world. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a depressing thing to grow up in the era of phones. <laughs> so, so basically just anything that doesn't involve a phone is what you're saying. Just get away from the phone. Yeah, I think that's a good first step. Yes. Anything without your phone, just leave it in another room if you can, you know, even just for an hour or half an hour or anything, you know, because I, I think that you have to make that cut. Making cuts is so important. Hmm. And the phone just keeps you in this. In psychoanalytic terms, it's called like mirroring. It's total. It's a total like mirror, and it just keeps you in this mirror where you're like constantly doing things. Yeah, to get a certain reaction, to get attention, it keeps you in like the mother baby symbiosis, but with like hmm. the internet. Wow. And that can be useful in certain ways, but in other ways, it's like really not healthy. It keeps you in the mother baby symbiosis with the internet. Say more about that. Yeah, that's dark. <laughs> Well, that's what, I mean, Lacan called it the mirror stage. It's like when a, a baby first starts seeing its own mirror reflection and realizing that it's a separate being, you know. But before that, it's just like the baby's constantly mirrored by the primary caregiver, which is usually the mother, but of course doesn't have to be. Um, and you're in this like mirror relation where the baby's constantly do everything it does is to get attention for the mother and to keep the attention. And like if the mother like goes to the bathroom you know forget it like the baby will go crazy scream and scream you know uh. it needs that constant like mirroring or else it's like the idea is that it like disappears in a sense like if the other isn't there to mirror you that you feel like you don't exist like the sense of annihilation wow. and i feel like you can see that in like people that have grown up with these screens it's like like carl's daughter for example if her phone breaks i mean it's like a complete meltdown down it's like your entire sense of everything your connection to everything is gone you know that it's like it's like they're way too attached to it um and it's like people don't exist without it and that's a big problem because yeah we might not always have it guys <laughs> that's that's really i've never thought about it like that before that's super dark so it's like it's basically if you don't get the reactions on the phone or if you get a negative reaction it means you're gonna die because it means your mom is gonna leave you to starve basically is what your psychology yeah, is yeah, that's exactly. so it's so dark yeah that's reality <laughs> that's so dark mommy baby symbiosis isn't nice <laughs> Oh man! So how, we like to make it nice and cute, but it's not really. <laughs> you mean the the actual symbiosis when the, the the between the baby and the mother? What did you say? You mean the the actual that actual period of development is not nice, where it's the mirror stage, like that needs yeah, that needs like to be broken. Yeah, they're like devouring each other. Yeah. What, what do you mean? What do you Basically. mean by that? What do you mean by that? Oh, I've written papers about it. Um, it's basically 
yeah, they're all, they need to each be everything for the other. Um, and there's a constant demand. There's a constant demand that the mother's always providing for the baby. And also there's a constant demand from the mother to the baby. Yeah. Like I've given up, you know, this part of my life for you, like you better be this and that, the other thing. So I think people like to romanticize it, of course, but, uh, it's really kind of a violent relationship in a lot of ways. Hmm. But violent and emotionally violent emotionally okay so and taxing and draining so what is the healthy way to segue out of that stage ideally psychoanalysis psychoanalysis for mothers or parents to have other interests besides the children right because you have to have other attachments like it's not good to like be dependent on one person for everything um because yeah nobody can be your everything so it's important to kind of diversify your attachments so that way when one of them kind of lets you down you still have like all these other different supports in place hmm. talk about um Talk about just day to day. I can send you. I think I one of my very early podcast episodes. I recorded a talk that I gave about this. I can send you the link to it. Sure. Yeah, that, that sounds good. Know what you think? Yeah, that sounds good. Talk talk about the day to day doing magic as a couple. Like how does how does that look day to day? I think a lot of people listening to this podcast would really like a a sense of that and maybe tips of things they can kind of model or take away from in their own partnerships. Carl, I'm going to let you go because I went last time about our third mind and I didn't get to hear what you said. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Uh, I think that um, what we're doing is uh, in part individual and in part uh, together where you have the sort of the, this third mind uh, aspect coming in uh, and uh, they're not really possible to separate. Uh, and we are both uh, very uh, happy in the sense that we both work from home, right? So we are each in his or her own bubble, but we have a, a bubble that's for all of us also, including the dog. Uh, and and um, uh, every day is just like, um, in a way, normal. You get up and you do what you do. And Vanessa is a psychoanalyst and has her patients. Uh, and I run the little publishing company and I also write a lot and do other things. Uh, most of the stuff in my case is imbued with magic in itself, meaning it's thematically about magic uh, or some topic that is closely related or what I'm writing about is um, uh, either thematically connected or a spell of sorts in a way, like for instance, when writing fiction. Um, so a way where we bridge this is for instance, me asking Vanessa about this or that having to do with my work or my process. And, and she's doing the same uh, with me, although not on um, things about patients, but about, for instance, writing or Vanessa is working on her cut up novel now. So it could be something dealing with that or we read each other's material. Um, and then of course you have, so that said, those are our ritual moments when we're in our own individual bubbles with uh, occasional bridges going out into the other bubble, the other's bubble, uh, and sort of feeding back in a way. That's very, very good and super creative and actually permeated by some kind of third mind thing because I learn things about myself more 
when I, my constant it, analyzing car. Yeah, I can't yeah. stop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But, but I think what you're referring to also, or or asking about, is like you know more ritual aspects. Uh, we are doing a lot of ritual every day, according to the Crowleyan definition you know that anything you do is basically you know a ritual if it's uh, on the path to towards um, conformity with will uh, but there are also uh, hocus pocus aspects meaning when we go into a different mind frame and do things um to change space and time in that sense, meaning going into LaVey's proverbial uh, intellectual decompression chamber, because we're both very intellectual and and uh, you can achieve a lot of magical stuff by being in that uh, mind frame, but sometimes you really do have to leave it. And I don't mean then to you know kick back and relax, but to actually be in a different mind frame to reprogram yourself in a way, or if you will, reprogram the universe so that you achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. And that we do uh, in many different ways. Uh, I think some I don't want to divulge, but on a kind of uh, general level, it's basically about going into uh, role play and depending on what the goal is to to invest perhaps a sigil or perhaps some other kind of artwork in which it's irrationally formulated what we want to achieve. And then that becomes um, the process becomes a transcendental experience in itself, you know, creating it or charging it or or uh, dealing with it. Uh, also, I would say the creation of art together uh, for us is imbued with ritual aspects. You know, it is in a different mind frame than if we're simply talking to each other about this or that. You know, so that kind of thing where we um, work on projects together uh, is basically, uh, I would say, almost 100% ritually uh, infused. Very cool. And we get kinky on the weekends. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's always important. <laughs> well, we covered a lot of ground there. Um, are there, let's see, are, is there anything we didn't touch on or thoughts you want to tie off or expand on any from any of that? I think it's very symptomatic what, what Vanessa um, said in the beginning, how we, uh, we're not happy with just doing one thing and just leaving it at that. Many of our, Projects are a bit amorphous. Uh, they are constantly moving in different directions and moving, I would say, onwards, hopefully. Meaning that if I write a text about something, could be magical, could be a spell, you know, Vanessa cuts it up and reads and records it. I set it to music and then we make a film together and that can be shown and some stills from the film could be exhibited. That's just like one example of a kind of schematic way we've been doing things uh, when it comes to sort of, let's call it the art projects. Um, and I put those things in, in quotes because art for me is, uh, it's not good enough if it's only for, again, the art world or the art market. It's, it's not interesting enough. Uh, it needs to carry magical, uh, a magical spell, magical potential, magical charge. Um, however, when we do this in different environments, each with its own designated medium in a way, we do get a lot of interesting feedback and results also because it's the, um, it's the old butterfly effect, isn't it? You know, you send something out, you know, if it's amplified by a screen or a public screening or it's amplified by electricity and amplifiers, um, 
it, it just goes on forever. And occasionally it will find a good soil in some young or old psyche somewhere around this globe. And there a little flower will, will um, eventually grow. And that's really what makes it worthwhile. Yeah, and mine, I'll just tie up too with the symbiosis thing. I'll send you the link to this talk. But the, the reason why, because a lot of times people think of symbiosis as like this blissful thing, which of course, you know, it can be that experience, but you don't want a totally symbiotic relationship because then you get lost in it, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it does lead to annihilation. And a lot of times if it's between two people, you know, the dominant kind of personality will take other over and the other person will just kind of get absorbed into them. And that ha- can happen, you know, with parents and children, but it can also happen with like couple couple relationships. Uh, so it's really important that, you know, even when you're working in a third mind with someone really closely, that you always also have your own thing and that you like both are, are your own individual individual individuated people and then you come together with the, with these kinds of third mind work because you don't you don't want to get lost in it and, and kind of disappear you know what are your like safety checks for that um carving out space for yourself absolutely um i always think you know you know they always say well there's like classic cheesy thing like if you love something set it free but it, but not necessarily set it three because i think i think people do this with relationships too with like text they text and they expect somebody to immediately text them back and if they don't they're kind of waiting and there's this kind of yeah. it's like what they call the demand there's like I a demand it. from the other that you have to constantly be in in contact and it's really it's doesn't lead anywhere good and any healthy relationship you have you won't feel that as much like you'll meet each other there but you also need to be able to give each other space you know and let and let people have their own space and know that that's like better for everyone um so it's always great to air if you're in some sort of new relationship air on the side of space you know like it's okay if you don't text back immediately and if other people have a problem with that you know then maybe that's not the right person for you mm. but like you have to give each other a little bit of space and not be constantly caught in this kind of mirror relation where you are constantly needing this this uh yeah approval from the other person or or the, or the screen you know very useful all right. Well, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Um, where can that was an awesome conversation. Thank you very Thank much. You. Where where can people Yeah, thanks for having us. It's so nice to meet you, Jason. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and of course, you're both welcome on anytime. I've already done two episodes with Carl, so might as well keep it going. Um what uh where can people find out more about these books specifically and the rest of your work and uh, the new Substack and and Patreon and so forth? Well, I think that the, we should probably uh, tie this up or in with with the Patreon specifically, because that's really where we write about all kinds of stuff. Also, the creative stuff, you know, okay. about manifestations, new releases, news in general, exclusive material. So that would be patreon.com uh, slash Vanessa23Carl, Vanessa23Carl. Um, and then, of course, we both have our own individual websites and uh, the Substack can be found from those two uh, websites and then all the other social social media things, too. So mine is carlabrahamson.com and Vanessa's is drvanessasinclair.net, drvanessasinclair.net. Um, and I think that's, um, yeah, the Substack I made the same name. So the Patreon is Patreon, uh, slash Vanessa23Carl, and the Substack is 
vanessa23carl.substack.com. Mm. I made it the same to make it easy for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, or and people Google I'm it. just taking... Yeah, I'm taking the Magic Monday post. It goes on Patreon first, and then whatever we posted that week, I'm copying and pasting it into the Substack for people there who prefer that platform. Because I heard some people do, um, and and that's the only thing that gets sent on the Substack is just this post once a week of the Magic Monday post, and then the Patreon we post like works in progress and other things. It's like more of a hub if you want if you like that. Super cool. And so the books. And are- then the books, of course, is available at Chapar, Carl's publishing company, Chapar.net, mm. um, or, or Amazon. All his books are available on Amazon now. So you can just uh, find them wherever you like to buy books online. So yeah. they're, they're called It's Magic Monday every day of the week. And we may need to call on our cosmic friends, Magic Monday Part Two. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, uh, we should put a bookmark in it for now. Thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. Okay. Good to talk to you. Great to meet you, Vanessa. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic meditation and mysticism where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class and until next time, hang in there.